0: So, hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Today is the day that we were jo- we are joined by a really special guest. I can't really emphasize more, but I'll let everyone introduce themselves first, and then we can get started. So, my name is Michelle. Um, I'm an alumni from Moringa, and welcome to the podcast and enjoy listening. All
1: right, then. My name is Victor Ireving. I'm a software developer, also alumni of Moringa. Welcome
2: back to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Leo Igane, a software engineer, and I work at Moringa School.
3: Hi guys, it's Kevin Ahera, um, community developer at Ava. Welcome back to the podcast.
2: Uh, hi guys,
4: this is Eugene. I'm a software developer. Uh, welcome back to the podcast.
5: Hi guys, it's Melissa, software developer. Welcome back. So
0: today we have a guest. His name is Scott. Maybe I'll let him introduce himself and tell us more about you.
6: Sure. <laughs> hi everybody. Um, my name is Scott Chacon. I'm one of the I was one of the co-founders of GitHub, um, which I guess hopefully you guys use at <laughs> And uh, and I, I left GitHub a couple of years ago and started a new startup um, based uh, mostly in Berlin. Um, that's a language learning startup called Chatterbug, and uh, I'm here visiting Nairobi for for some fun and some business and and thought it'd be fun to stop by. Thank right. you. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation, by the way. Ah, thank,
0: thank you for coming. accepting. <laughs> we didn't really expect it. So why are you here in Nairobi in the first place?
6: Um, so, in Nairobi, I'm here because I was invited uh, by Mark Karaki, I think is his last name, um, the, who thought it would be nice for me to come and talk a little bit about entrepreneurship and about uh, sort of you know, running software companies um, through all of the stages uh, of, of software development and, and, and running a software company. And so, he thought it would be nice for me to come and give a talk as long as I w- uh, was in the area. Um, I'm actually just transiting through, so I, I flew in this morning and I'm flying out tonight, um, so I'm just <laughs> doing this and that and then going. Wow. Um, but my family was here to do some safari and, and to, to vacation sort of in, in, in uh, Nairobi, and then um, my family's charitable foundation also has some projects that we work with in Kasumu, so they went and visited the projects in Kasumu, um, and, and then in, in Kigali as well, in, in Rwanda.
5: So Scott, do you remember the first thing you sold? Um, you're an entrepreneur, but can you take us back to the first, you know, sort of business you ever had or... Yeah, um, so the yeah. first
6: business that I ever had was GitHub, actually. So I I was a software developer um, for a couple of different startups after I graduated from, from university. I went to UC San Diego. Um, and I actually didn't graduate with a CS degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I may have minored in CS. I, I actually can't even remember now. <laughs> I was actually an art major, and so... Um, I came up, but I was doing computer programming on the side to, to sort of pay my way through college, and then graduated. And I actually wanted to go get a PhD in linguistics. I was really interested in linguistics, which is kind of I think why I'm in language learning space now. Um, but uh, but I moved. I followed my wife up to the Bay Area, and it was much easier to get a job as a computer programmer than uh, it was much a better paying job and, and easier to get. And I already had the skill sets and and a couple years of doing it professionally, so I just ended up keeping you know doing computer programming um, in in the Bay Area and worked for a couple of startups and then um, I went to some meetups uh, for Ruby at the time so like old Twitter headquarters when Twitter was probably a hundred people or something you know all of these big names now were really really small at the time and they they were hosting these Ruby meetups where not that many people were using Ruby or rails that was my I think you guys are doing like Django and Python and stuff yeah. Yeah. Um, but but even that I, I don't think Django was around at the time, um, or would have been really young. And so I went to these meetups and I was talking about Git. I was doing Git stuff, and I met these other guys that were interested in Git, and they wanted to do this little side project. And so they invited me um, in as a contractor at first to to work on gist, which is like this sort of clip or copy copy paste thing. Um, and, uh, and and so that's how I got involved with them. And we became friends. And then they decided they wanted to do this full time. We started having some paying customers on GitHub. And I was the guy who knew Git. And so I quit my job, which was actually very well-paying at, at a startup, um, and joined them with just the four of us, you know, sort of working on this side project that was starting to make a little bit of money. And, and, you know, we all kind of starved for a year or so as as we built up enough revenue to actually pay ourselves a salary to live in the Bay Area. Yeah. And and then it just kept growing and growing and growing. And so that's kind of, you know, that's, that's how GitHub started. But that was the first thing I ever did. Actually, it was really kind of a pain in the ass because none of us had ever run businesses before. None of us had business backgrounds. We were all... It's like, you know, you guys starting, a co- actually, you guys probably have way more business background than we did. We, we really just knew the bosses that we didn't like, and we were like, well, we won't do that. Um, and, and, and just, you know, we were in our 20s and just started, started from whatever we thought of. Well, that's going to be our business practices.
4: And it, it wasn't always the best decision, but, you know, it, it worked out in the end. So, so what is the greatest learning curve? Since you said you didn't know much about business, what was the most, uh, the greatest thing that you learned? Yeah, after?
6: so I mean, there's a lot of things that that we learned. I think because um, we, you know, we grew the company over. I, I was there for eight years before I left, um, and so in that time we went from four employees to uh, 450 employees. I think by the time I left, and and so that's a much much different type of company. Mm-hmm. Um, we we had bootstrapped it for four years and then raised our our first. A round um, was a hundred million dollars which is uh, not done like it's not really a common thing obviously Um, and so like we you know we learned a lot of things I think the most important thing that that coming from that company and starting another company um, from scratch that we were sure to implement was was trying to make sure that everybody knew who they reported to. So when we first started the company, we were all software developers, we were all open source developers, right? And so as open source developers, we were like if the Linux kernel can can have thousands of people working on it and it tends to work out fairly well and there's not really a reporting structure, which isn't really true, there is kind of a reporting structure and there are companies behind these, these things and there's a decision making process. Um, but it seemed all of the, the projects we were involved in, like Rails and stuff, didn't really have that type of process. And so we thought, if open source can do this, then companies can do this. Like, what's the difference? Um, we'll just run the company as sort of an open source project that that we only allow people we hire to work on, right? And, and I think one of the problems with that is there's this general chaos of not knowing what is expected of you, especially, you know, after 10, 13 employees, that's fine, but like after that, you don't know what's expected of you, you don't know if you're doing well, you don't know if you're going to get fired the next day, like you don't, you don't know what, what your expectations are, and so, and you don't know who to talk to, right, about where you want to go with your career, what you want to do, and so as the company became more mature, that was something that became really, really problematic, is that it was total chaos. People didn't know any of these things, and it was really stressful for people, and so, one of the first things that we did when we started the new companies make sure that everybody has one person that they report to and that person is responsible for the people that report to them and that they do one-on-ones regularly. And, and these this sort of processes that I, we came from these other companies where suddenly these processes sucked and we didn't understand why we're th- they were there. <laughs> yeah. And so it took this really painful lessons to figure out why they were there and then to re-implement them in a, in a you know, maybe a simpler manner than, than the ones, the companies we came from. But they were re- really important, right? Um, it's important to know what's expected of you and if you're doing well and how you can improve if, if you're not, right?
1: And so to ask you, for instance, like when your company started growing and you started, did you start like sort of considering uh, hiring technology that was not you know, locally available, and that's, I mean, remote employing, and right. do you sort of have a structure for that, or do you just hire remote developers? How did you go about hiring remote
6: developers? So remote is a fascinating topic to me, because at GitHub, we did it somewhat accidentally. So the first, GitHub didn't start as a remote company. I think it ended up that way now, or by the time, when I left, and I think it's similar now, Is 60%-ish, I think, of the company as, as a whole was remote, um, but it depended on the teams. I think the engineering team was more like 70% remote. Um, the customer service team was 95% remote. It was really just the, the leadership, I think, that was in San Francisco. Um, ops was all over the place. Sales was all over the place. But finance was all in the building. Um, so there were some teams that were like, we want ev- legal, right? We want everybody here. We can't, we, we don't want to do remote. That's not how we run this, this organization. Um, and so it depended on, on the team. but but. For, I mean, the first hundred hires were almost entirely engineering and support, right? And so those teams started out as local. The first 10 hires, I think, were all in San Francisco, and then there was the first person that we were like, we really want to hire this person, and they were like, I'm not going to move, and we were like, well, I guess we're running like an open source project. I don't see why we can't have remote employees as well, and so it just kind of went from there where almost all of the next hires that we made were remote. Um, from all over the world as well and and so then we started running into all sorts of issues with remote which is you know people again not knowing how they're doing or what's expected of them or you know if they're going to get fired the next day having sort of these emotional issues of not being around other other people that they work with and not having that support system um, getting bored getting restless right of, of being in, in, in the house all day and not interacting with people um, there's tons and tons of things and we, we learned how to solve a lot of those problems I think over time um, but but it was relatively difficult. I think now at my new company we do have we we went to something in between, which was more like hubs. So we have a hub in San Francisco and a hub in Berlin, and we try to hire people at one of them if possible because we think that it's it's nice to have a place to go to if you yeah. want to. Um, but then half of the company works from home half the time. Um, you know, even in Berlin, like you go in and maybe half the people are in the office. Um and it was like that in San Francisco for GitHub as well. Like people would work from home a lot, even though they, they could come in, right? And then that made it nice because if you wanted to have a team meeting or something, you can schedule it for Thursday and then everybody can come in on Thursday and then but they can work from home or take their kids to school or have a um you know a flexible schedule or or if there's special events or something, they can do that. Like I think what's important is that as as somebody running a software company that you set goals and say, okay, this week, this is what I expect you to do, right? Mm-hmm. And that no matter how that person does it, as long as they do it, it doesn't matter when they do it or how they do it or or where they do it from. And I think that that's it's much easier, I think, to manage people that way to not be checking that people are in their desks all the time and working and like they look like they're working because that's not real work, right? Or do, doesn't doesn't necessarily indicate that it's work. <laughs> yeah. um, and you don't have to be checking on them all the time. It's just you know. Tell me what you're going to do next week, and then next week check up. Did you do this thing? Yes or no? Because of this, and like you just continue that pattern. And I think it works really well. Um, and then that allows people to have the flexibility to have a family or have kids or have things that that are um, often difficult to do in, in the software industry. If people are you know really, I don't know, pedantic about about things that don't I th- I think are not very important, like being there from eight to five or whatever. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we, there, there's a case of a person at my new company who started in, in Berlin and then uh, needed to move for family reasons and so now lives in Boston, and it works fine, right? Like, we still run the company as a remote company, even though most of our employees are in one of two places. Um, in San Francisco, nobody's in the office ever. It's, it's <laughs> literally like we have an office in San Francisco, and we all try to come in on Wednesday, and mm-hmm. otherwise everybody works from home the rest of the time. Um, actually, I think Liz comes in, but but she's like in the office by herself because the rest of us, you know, we're kind of spread out and we want to work from home and it's easier. So I, I, I would say that I think that the future of work is remote work. I think that it's really, really important. I think that if you're not, if you're forcing people to be in a specific location, um, it really reduces the talent pool that you have, right, Of or the people that, that you're allowed to. Um, to, to source from, I think that the, there are some major problems that you have to figure out how to get around, which are not easy problems. One is time zones. So the time zones between Berlin and San Francisco Berlin and San Francisco are horrible. It's like a nine hour time zone difference. I mean, if you guys are working in from like from here with people in Europe, it's not that big of a problem, right? I mean because of the time zone thing, but from San Francisco to Europe is is a nightmare. it's It's just always horrible. Um, even doing an all hands meeting, it's like, what time do we do it? do we do it? you know, 7 p.m. in Berlin, which is like every week there's a night that people can't go out and do shit because they're in the office. Can I swear on this? I don't even... um, (laughs) I don't want him to have to be going through, like, (laughs) writing down (laughs) timestamps and being like, okay, I gotta beep, Scott. Um, So, So... Yeah, I mean, time zones—you can never get around. It's just—it's always a problem, mm-hmm. um, and and taxes, and you know, if you if you're hiring people in 30 different countries, it's a nightmare. If you have one person in each country, which is one of the things GitHub is doing, and and we're not right—the new company is not doing that. We will do U.S. and Europe right now, and if there if there's another country that we want to start hiring people, we want to make presents and you know pay taxes mm-hmm. and like do, and it's you know so it's hard to 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 expand. Um, so. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that the future of work is remote work. I think software development can learn a lot from open source and figuring out how to do that. I think companies like Red Hat, companies like GitHub um, have a lot of really good knowledge on how to do that really well um, and that, that you can learn from. And I think it's totally worth it to, to have a remote work culture in your company, even if everybody's living in the same city. I think it's still really valuable to, to do. Okay.
0: who are working under your company how do you navigate and maybe be empathi- empathetic towards like a certain type of culture where I don't know are you do, have you solved I, I listened to one of your talks and have you solved that part of empathy in terms of remote culture
6: of, of having customers Empath- or employees in no all? employees employees and having employees in all these countries um, yeah to some degree I mean I mean I think I think a lot of it has to do with listening to your employees um, and and making sure that your employees get together in person. Mm -hmm. Uh, Occasionally, I think that empathy is important. Empathy is really important to be in person for to to build between employees. And so, um, and it actually brings up another issue with remote culture, which is not having people in the same room at the same time. Um, There's like this very high bandwidth communication that can happen when you have everybody in the room at the same time. I think that that is different than having everybody sort of Skype in or or Zoom or whatever you use um, to have a conversation where in person or you know, you can can have a nice high bandwidth conversation where you're planning strategy for, for like a long period of time or for a month or for six months or whatever and then everybody can then go home and sit down and work on stuff by themselves and be able to concentrate and not be interrupted and not have this like all of the problems with open workplace or open open uh, space plans, right? Of like being constantly interrupted and not being able to sort of get into the flow and 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 uh, or having meetings all the time or something. Um, and so the way that we kind of thought about it at GitHub, I think is to figure out what is the right ratio of, of having this in-person time where you can be really strategic about goals for the, the company or goals for the individuals um, or goals for the team um, and then individual time where you it's entirely up to you and you're not interrupted there's it's it's not interrupt driven um, and and you can concentrate on on achieving those goals. and some companies do them every day, right they have a stand-up meeting and they go through check-ins and they go through strategy and stuff like that and then and then theoretically the rest of the day should be sort of individual time, although I think in in an, in an office environment that's rarely the case. Um, some will do weekly meetings. Uh, Our company does a meeting every six weeks to sort of plan and we do that online. Um, GitHub would fly everybody in a team together and like rent a house or a hotel or something for for four days or for a week and do that once a quarter or do that once every or twice a year or something, right? Um, And so you'd have really high touch sort of time where you're kind of living together for a couple of days and then everybody would go back. And so I think the, the question is just what ratio works for your team? Um, and, and what gives people the right amount of strategy versus tactics, right, versus implementation. Um, and so, but that in-person time I think is important for for empathy. And I think being able to do something like, uh, like our company just came back from an all-hands summit where we rented a Finca in Mallorca in Spain for, for a week and like everybody, we flew everybody there. Um, thank goodness Ryanair has flights for like $30 from Berlin <laughs> to, to Spain. And everybody lived in. Sorry, I keep bumping this. Everybody lived in a house together for you know four days, and so there's a lot of empathy where, where we do exercises where people get to know each other, and then um, and everybody in this company are from all from different cultures because we're a language learning company, right? So we have a bunch of people from, from Spain, from South America, from France, from Berlin, from Africa, from Russia, right, from America, and so just have, I, I think that, that we're getting better at that here, but it's having people spend time together, right? Or have a beer together, or talk about uh, their lives and, and, and what the product means to them. Okay. So, so I mean, the product is, I mean, you're talking, I think, specifically from a product perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Do, do, do all of these different cultural um, implications come in to figure out, is the product okay? Like, does it work in Africa? Does it work in mm-hmm. South America, right? Um, and and it is it's really really difficult, right? It's having people from those cultures in your company yeah. that can say this isn't going to work in 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 you know uh, Togo or something like that. Like we don't have this type of thing that works. I, whatever, right? Like uh, I just said that because one of the one of the Chatterbug employees is from Togo. But um, she'll, you know, I think having people from various backgrounds in your company is is important, especially if you want to go into those markets. Let me let me ask, right?
2: Yeah. You say that you started, you were working, and then you were the one who you get, and yeah. you were a bunch of uh, devs, and you started working on the program, uh, on your product, rather, and that was your first company. Yeah. So my question is, how do you know you have a good enough product that if you give it time, and then you can quit and know that this is going places? Are there mm-hmm. signs that you can tell, or is just uh, give it a go?
6: Yeah, so, I mean, it depends on the product. So... Um, for GitHub it was fairly easy because we had started this side project and somebody emailed us and said, can I pay for this? And we were like, yeah, sure. I'll, you know, like PJ was like, I'll write some billing code this weekend. Like, I don't know. Like, we'll take your money. If you want to give us money, we'll take your money. (laughs) Um, And so I think having that type of thing is really good. I think think, you know, the, a really valuable thing is to figure out, will people pay for this? Um, Because because i think you can a common strategy is to to try to give it away for free and and then build up a big audience and then and then try to leverage that audience at some point in the future um and that's very expensive and and doesn't mean that you have a particularly good product right yeah. i think having people be willing to pay for whatever it is you're building means that you have a good product because it's worth it's valuable yeah. it's it's intrinsically valuable to them um, even if it's just a small amount, right? Like just, and, and that was one of the first things that we did at Chatterbug as well, is try to get people to start paying for the product and say, is this, like, try to figure out, is this valuable or are you just using it because it's free, which are very different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at GitHub, that was, it was clear very early, like we had this free thing for open source <clears throat> and somebody was like, I really wanna use this for my private projects as well because this is much better than what I've been doing um, and I'm willing to pay money for it, right? And so we're like, oh, okay, this, this has value, right? People obviously find this valuable. Um, and that just sort of took off we We really didn't do a lot of funnel analysis or or market analysis or marketing at all really um it was It was a very sort of viral thing, but people did like paying for it right like even even people that didn't even use the private repositories they would pay it just in the early days just to make sure we were around because they liked our they liked our product oh, a lot right wow. and we didn't even have a product that you could pay for if you were only using open source um and so so I think that's the best the best indicator, right, is to try to get any market fit, to, to try to get somebody to pay you for, for your product, even if you don't need the money, even if you have you know some backing or whatever and, and you don't need to do it, I think it's really, really valuable to put something out in the market and see if people will pay for it. And if they don't, figure out why they're not, right? Okay. Or if they do, ask them what you could be doing better um, or, or what they would pay more for, right? Um, because Because what you're trying to figure out is a problem that you're solving in somebody's life that's worth some of their money to, to solve that problem for them. Like most businesses, that's really the core of, of, of what you're trying to do, right? Unless you're an advertising company, which I would I would encourage you not to be an advertising company if, <laughs> if at all possible. Yeah. Um, I apologize if anybody listening to this is an <laughs> advertising company. Um, But that's just a very difficult product because you're not building a product for the users, you're building a product for this third party, right? And so you will compromise on things that the users need in order to to make the third party happy. Um, Whereas if you're a consumer company or a business, you know, B2B company, then you're really... Interact, like you can, you should be close to the customer, you should be knowing what the customer's problems are, if you're solving them right, like if there's better ways you can solve them, and money is a good way of determining that, right? Will they pay you or will they not pay you? Like that's, it's, it's, it makes it very simple. Um, Because customers will tell you lots of things, but the money is actually the easiest thing to really determine value for, for them.
0: So on the point of listening to your customers or employees. So how to what extent do you allow like uh, your system to change in order to fit like a customer or an employee?
6: Yeah, I mean I would that's a really good question. So I've been trying to not do that for myself because my new company okay, so we did this for GitHub massively. So GitHub was always good, was always the best tool for a company that was exactly the size that GitHub was, right? So Like when we were four people, we built a tool that was great for a team of four people, right? Or one to four people. Um, When we were 100 people, the tool was really optimized for like a medium, like a small to medium-sized developer group, like 30, 40 developers, like working on a couple of different products. Like it was very good at that. It was very bad at enterprise. And we started getting worse at larger open source stuff because none of us really ran larger open source stuff. And and it became really difficult because we would always fit to our own use case. and it worked out well because there were a lot of companies like that, and it was a really good place to get into the market. And we got better at enterprise later once we started working with enterprise customers and bringing them in and hiring a team to just solve their problems. Where we didn't have those problems, we didn't care about single sign-on or you know whatever. Like that wasn't that wasn't a problem. We ended up caring about it when we got to 500, 800 people, and so it was nice that we could build it before that. But um, but it, it it is either you're the customer or you are very very close with the customer. And so I think that there's there's you know, I mean, a couple different ways that you can do that. You can find customers that are very similar to you and try to get deep within that market and then expand, which is probably the best one because then you really feel the problems yourself. And that's mainly what GitHub did. Um, And what my new company is doing as well, it's very highly fitted to me learning a language and the types, the type of learning that I like to do and where I am in my language learning progress. So when I first started, it was with German and we concentrated on, on zero to, you know, A1 sort of German. Um, and it was very good at that. And then as I got into the higher levels, it was not as good at the higher levels. And so I kept sort of hitting these barriers and saying it's not good at, you know, these these things. This is, like, I have different problems now that I'm more advanced in the language. And so I wanted to be very careful we weren't overfitting everything, right, where now it's not good at beginner stuff because we're overfitting everything for the, the more advanced uh, language learning problem sets. And so the way that we solve that in our company is just making everybody in the company learn a new language, and so everybody's at different levels all the time, and we're all using it, right? And so we can all kind of say, "I can say I want this," and then the beginner, the people who are starting to learn French, can say, "That's not going to work very well at this level," or we can even implement it, and they can say, "This, this, this got worse, right? This is harder now." Um, and so that's one thing you can do is dog food if it's possible, right? If if you can use your own product as much as possible, I think, but it shouldn't be one person; it should be the whole company. Um, the the other thing is is there are industries where you can't do that. Like if you're building, you know, I don't know, mining equipment, right? Or something like that's like you like, I'm not gonna go mining. I don't I don't know how to do that. <laughs> um, you, you should be very, very close with a customer if that's if that's the case, right? B2B is is like that, right? If you're building enterprise software, like you're not gonna start out as an enterprise. You have to find an enterprise and be sort of a service partner with them and like build something that works for them and and try very hard not to make it so that it only works for them, right? Which is which is Difficult, but 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 doable. And then the other thing to avoid as well is is to not try to change your entire product to fit one customer. If if some big IBM comes in and says, okay, I want you to teach languages to all of our employees, and I want it this very specific way, and I want you to change everything, to say, no, like I'm not going to do that. Like we have a vision of what we want to accomplish, and it's not to be an IBM service provider, right? Um, not to make fun of IBM. I don't know. I, it's not just
0: to... not for them. Yeah. 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 But I mean. <laughs>
6: Uh, trying trying to to yeah figure out what the company you want to be, get good customers on board and then make them very happy right mm-hmm. and so then j- sorry, just one final thing I think that's really important on this aspect is to have really, really good customer service because on, uh, no matter what you do, <clears throat> when you're building product, if you're not listening to your customers or making it easier for your customers to complain to you, like the easy like this, this is actually the, probably the best way of, of being a really good product company is to hire a customer service person is one of your first hires, right? To, to make sure that every, even have them be bored. Like everything that comes in, you want them to be excited that something came in, that they can like concentrate on for the whole day and like write some massive email back of like everything that they were doing for them because it makes super fans. Like the people, your customers are then like, wow, this is the greatest customer service I've ever gotten. Like this person cares so much about my problem um, and, and encourages them to, to say when something's wrong with the product, right? Or when something's frustrating them. Um, If, I would encourage you actually to go to whatever product you're building and pretend you're a customer and see how long it takes you to send an email to customer service and how difficult it is. Um, How many steps does it take? Because it should be two, right? It should be, you click on something on, on the website, and it gives you a single form that says, what's your problem? And you type it in and hit enter. And that's it. And that sh- should be all that it is, right? It shouldn't be email, which makes them go to another program and like type out an email and you lose context of what they're doing. Um, it shouldn't be, they shouldn't have to classify it. They shouldn't have to say, like, okay, what's the subject of what you're talking? They shouldn't even have to put a subject and a body. Like, just have them type the body in, right? And that will go to your customer service team and they can, they can triage it. Um, your customer shouldn't have to do that for you. Um, It shouldn't have a big drop-down of all the things like anything where you're trying to take work off of yourself And offload it onto your customer to complain to you is I think a really poor idea Um, I think it should be really really simple to say hey There's a problem with the website or I'm not happy about this thing Mm -hmm. because that is the most valuable feedback you get from your customers is here's the thing that frustrates me because there's probably other customers that
2: feel that too most of the time you find that you're a bunch of devs working on an idea, right? So you're building it many times maybe to ease your own personal projects or your own work and you're like hey I think this is a good idea other people can use it right so I want to ask where does an expert in business come in or where does the business aspect come in in? because most of the time it's people who don't really necessarily know business we just know how to code so yeah at what point do you now need to get yeah
6: yeah I mean that's a good question we we at GitHub we didn't really hire anybody that was that was Specialized in business um, or had a business background until we were probably 150 employees, um, and and we raised 100 million dollars in venture capital, right? and then we're like, <laughs> we should probably have somebody that knows how to do a PL. Um, and so I think before that point is a better place to start. Um, I, it depends on what you're doing though, as well, right? Like if you want to hire a sales team and run it, like run a sales organization. Um, do HR appropriately. I mean, if you're in a, it depends on the country you're in, how difficult it is to, you know, do accounting and bookkeeping and stuff properly. If you can, if you can hire that, if you can trust people, if you need lawyers, like all of, you can outsource a lot of that stuff. It is nice to have somebody who knows what they're doing across all of that and keeping it all together and making sure that you'll be fiscally stable, right? Um, which is another problem where. If you're a developer, sometimes you'll just you'll just see numbers and like you don't really care, and then all of a sudden you're out of money or you have a month left, and, and I've seen that happen a lot as well, right? And so you really want somebody to look at the long term, um, to to evaluate you know marketing options and stuff, and say this is probably isn't worth it because it's going to burn more than it'll probably bring in at this point. Um, to do analysis of you know how much is it costing us in marketing to bring in customers versus what are their lifetime values and being able to analyze that I think in a meaningful way, which developers tend not to do, um, and so. Yeah, it depends on on the business, and if it's B two B, if you are doing sales, like developers are horrible at hiring salespeople, um, and and don't know the the culture, and don't know why things are valuable in that world that are different than than in the software development world, um, and I think I've that was one of the things that I really came to have a huge appreciation for is really good salespeople in in the, the, my last year at GitHub probably. Um, just seeing how good they are at being essentially a type of customer service person, right, as opposed to sort of this used car salesman thing that I think a lot of developers see sales organizations as. This is coin-driven thing, Um, but there are really good sales organizations that try to empathize with the customer and try to solve their problems and try to advocate for them within your company, Um, and I I think that that type of sales organization is incredibly valuable if you're dealing with enterprises. Um, So I think having business people in Early-ish is, is valuable, but you know, if you're a developer and if you have a, a technical co-founder, I, I think it's 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 very actually valuable to have a co-founder as well, which is maybe another topic we can talk about a little bit. But um, you know, maybe one of you is business and one of you is tech, or or I mean, I think I think that actually works out fairly well as for, for a number of different reasons, um, which actually goes into why I think it's it's valuable to have a co-founder, which is to have somebody to tell you no, right? Um, because as a sole founder. This is one of the things, like, I probably could have started this, this chatterbug and gone down the road and been the CEO and told everybody what to do, but I think it's a really bad way of running a business because then you have bad ideas, and nobody's like, that's a bad idea, right? Like, you need to have people that are on semi-equal footing with you to say, like, I own this company as well, and we can sit down and have a conversation about this, and you can have bad ideas, and I can have bad ideas, but we can point it out in each other and try to come up with the best idea every time, right? And the, if you have two or three or four um, I, in GitHub, there are four of us, and in Chatterbug, there are four of us, and I like that that grouping, right? Like we can throw out something; it can be a bad idea. We can have a good conversation about it, and we can say, "Okay, no, that was a bad idea. Let's let's try something different, right?" Or move it into a good idea, like change it a little bit or something, right? And so I think having other people around you to say no, to push back, um, to come up with ideas on their own that you can work with, right, is a much much more valuable thing. And having somebody from different backgrounds, if you have four, you know, uh, uh, sort of tech dudes in their 20s that are all sitting around coming up with ideas that are all from the same country, like, it's, it's probably going to be a little bit different than if you have people from vast, radically different backgrounds right? mm-hmm. saying, this is a good idea, this is a bad idea. So if you have somebody in business and somebody in tech and somebody in marketing or whatever, and like you can, as co-founders, say, here's what we want to do, and everybody has their ideas of how, whether that's a good or bad idea, I think that's much healthier for the company than, than having something that's more either single or, or monocultural.
1: Okay, now uh, coming back to Chatterbug, uh, it's not even coming; it's coming into Chatterbug. Yeah. Like, how, how was Chatterbug born? Like, what what what? Uh, how did you come up with the idea yeah. of starting this uh, company that's basically about teaching people languages, especially considering it's sort of quite a radical change from a company that's all about code and uh, right. integrating companies and collaboration to actually learning languages? Like, how did that come about?
6: Yeah. Yeah, so I think, I mean, so this is, um, my advice would be uh, of how to start a business would not be to sit down and come up with ideas that you think would be good businesses, Mm -hmm. but to see something in your life that is, has unnecessary friction and then try to create something that reduces it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so GitHub was like that where, you know, we were trying to host uh, open source. I mean, we're all open source programmers and the the ways that you hosted open source in those days before GitHub was was all advertising driven, and so the tools were actually quite poor, right? SourceForge and 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 tools like that, um, they weren't really developed for software developers. They were developed. Um, for software distribution and advertising. And so they weren't good for software developers. And they, the companies didn't give a sh- shit. Sorry. I'm like <laughs> totally really... Not, yeah. This is the only time I've ever tried to censor myself. Even in front of my kids, I just swear all the time. And like, um, it's okay. Uh, uh, but but yeah, they don't care, right? They, they, they Because they cared about the advertisers. And, and so that was one point of... of of problem the other is that Git was very new and we didn't really have a place to put it. And so we had these, these frictions and we said, okay, let's make something that's really good. Let's make something that is is based on Git and further than that, looks at all of the decisions that SourceForge, for example, made and question all of them. Like, like when you sign up for an account, how many fields do you need to fill out? Right, they have you fill out a million fields because they need all the demographics to sell to their advertisers. But you like if if we just care that you're a software developer and you just need to count, we need your username and a password. Like, what do we need? Literally anything else than that? Like, do we even need an email address? Like. It, like you can argue that it's helpful to have it and have it verified, and so you can send password resets or whatever, but is it technically necessary? And so like, I think we did end up using that for, for password reset purposes, but like, it's, it, I think it's really valuable to go through and question everything and say like, is this actually helping the customer? Is this actually necessary? Mm-hmm. Or is it wasting their time that helps maybe us, but it doesn't help them, right? And we can get it later if, if, if it's valuable to them. Um, and so we went through and we did that whole, that whole thing and we solved a problem that we had in our lives, right? And we built something that we wanted to use and it turned out that a lot of other people wanted to use it as well and that's why I think it became really popular. Um, or that's one of the reasons. I think, so for, for Chatterbug it was it was a very similar thing, right? I, I was thinking about leaving the company, I was thinking about starting a new company with one of the co-founders of GitHub who had left um, and I was sending him pitches, right? I was coming up with ideas and these were things generally that came up in my life um, and the language thing was the one that he liked, uh, I think. And, and so we ended up going down that path because, again, I wanted a co-founder um, and I didn't want to do it by myself. And, and it was because I, at the last days of GitHub, I like dogfooding. I like dog doing stuff in the company that I think helps me empathize with other people in the company. And so one of the things was I wanted to move to France or I wanted to move outside of San Francisco for some amount of time to get an idea of what it was like to be a remote developer because or a remote employee, because we had so many remote employees and all of the leadership and all of the co-founders were in San Francisco. And I think it created a, a cultural dichotomy that was that was not healthy, right? That, that I thought it would be really valuable for me to be a remote employee for a while and get a better idea of what it's like to be in a time zone that's vastly different, or what it's like to be paid in one currency but live in another one, um, or you know whatever, uh, to, to have to attend all meetings remotely, right, or not have any employees around you and And so I did that. I, I chose Paris somewhat randomly and moved to Paris and started learning French like a couple months before I moved to Paris. I didn't know any French before I moved. Um, and and lived in Paris for a year and learned a fair amount of French and tried everything, right? I tried talkie, like these online things, um, in-person schools, Alliance Francaise in, in Paris, I did um, in-person tutoring, somebody that would meet me in Paris and we'd walk around and speak French. I did all these different things, and there's pluses and minuses to all of them, and it was all a huge pain. Like, If you're not a full-time student, um, either in university or in a language school, it's very, very hard to learn a language, because you can't really learn it out of books, and you can't really learn it off of apps, because you're not speaking to anybody, um, and it's There's just a ton of overhead and a ton of different things there's no really good online school that you can just go and do and it's really efficient and so that was my friction right I I wanted to pay to do this thing and there was nothing that existed to do it the way that I wanted to do it and so I built I built it right Mm -hmm. Um, and and I think it is very effective and very valuable and I'm proud of the product that that we've built I think it works really well my Germans actually relatively good now Um, but it was born from a friction that I saw in my life and something that I would have paid for if it existed and it didn't exist. And I think that that's actually a pretty good, especially for a software developer coming up with ideas like look at your life and figure out what, what is difficult and say, would I pay if this thing existed? And if the answer is, is honestly yes, and you would pay for it, then you should build it and be your own first customer and then, and then find other people that have that problem, right? Mm-hmm. And then the question is just the scale of the problem.
1: All right, and coming into the like the growth of the company, uh, when you started Chatterbug, uh, you you got to a point and you sought seed funding. Sindom. You know? like yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've so been questioned before for speaking yeah? uh, so little. Yeah. Uh, so you sought seed funding, right? Yeah. And like, why would uh, what was some some of the benefits that you sought? Uh, to looking for uh, a venture capitalist and what were the traits in the venture capitalist that you you tried to you used that to identify the, the the capital the VC that you would go for uh, to fund your company. Yeah,
6: so I'm actually a horrible person to ask that question to <laughs> for two different reasons. One is that it, it's mostly just that I haven't been through a normal fundraising round, right? And yeah. so my my fundraise the first the fundraising rounds that we did at GitHub were from uh, a huge leverage point, right, of Mm -hmm. these VC, we we had bootstrapped the company, everybody knew us, we owned, I mean, we essentially had the entire software development, open source software development community using us on a daily basis in in most cases. Um, All open source projects were on us, every VC knew who we were, all of their portfolio companies used us, um, and we had not taken any money from anybody, nobody owned any of the company except for the four of us, or I mean, our employees. And um, and so when we went to raise, they all really, really, really wanted to be to 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 own some of GitHub, right? They wanted to invest in us really badly, and so we had a very um, abnormal fundraising round, right, where we had VCs fighting each other to to give us money, right? And that's not generally how you fundraise. Um, It is a very good place to come (laughs) at from a fundraising standpoint, Um, and it worked out, I think, well for everybody. I think you know, I mean, Microsoft we. Eventually, uh, I, I wasn't involved in this, but um, the company was, was acquired by Microsoft for, you know, seven and a half billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And so the first in- investors that came in probably made ten times of their money in, what, five years, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and it was a significant amount of money to, to begin with. And so it worked out well for us. It worked out well for them, like, like you know, but it was an abnormal way of raising money, and so I can't I have no good advice for that other yeah. than bootstrap your company to one hundred and fifty employees and make <laughs> vCS fight for 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 it to give you cash. Um, so that's probably not that helpful. For Chatterbug, I was also in a unique position in that I had some capital, and so I could self fund the company. Mm. Um, i We mostly looked for VCS to invest in us um, so that we would have a network, right? So that there were people that were not us that that could check us and say, here's what I think about what you're doing and, you know, talk to other people and help us find candidates for executive positions. And, um, and also we were going into Berlin. Uh, we decided we had this, this early German product that we were using on me. It was working okay. We wanted to go to market as early as we could. Mm-hmm. And so we decided that we were going to go into Berlin and try to sell our product to software developers in Berlin, right? So because I knew a lot of software developers that came from uh, that came from Australia and New Zealand and America and England that live in Berlin. It's a very international city and don't speak German and kind of want to. Um, and they would send them to sort of language school. So we're like, okay, this is maybe an interesting test market. We'll go in there and, and maybe use our GitHub backgrounds to, to find some software developers that want to learn German and we'll sell them this thing and see if it works. Um, and so going into Berlin, like Tom and I never, like none, no, nobody, none of the co-founders really knew how to start a business in Berlin. How do you register a GmbH? How do you, um, you know, how do you hire? How do you find office space? How do you pay taxes? Like we don't know any of that stuff, and so, uh, so we needed to, to hire somebody. And the easiest way that that we thought was to have somebody invest in us, and that had that was a Berlin-based VC, which is also not something we were going. There was the, it, it was these two, Silicon Valley ex-GitHub, successful you know, entrepreneurs with cash, right, that were then shopping, for VCs in Europe. And the European VCs were like, what the fuck are you guys doing? (laughs) You could, like, everyone here goes to the Valley to try to raise. And we knew everyone in the Valley. Like, we we could get a meeting meeting with anybody, right? Like, it would be very easy to say there's these two GitHub co-founders that want a meeting, and anybody would sit down for that. Um, uh, and 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 here we were in only looking in in Berlin really only looking in Germany and the Germans were very confused by the whole process like they didn't trust us that, that we were there <laughs> they were like why anyways so so but that's why we we raised we raised from a great uh, VC firm in Berlin called Fly VC and and Gabriel the partner there has been really really valuable to 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 me especially like meeting with him and having him say okay here's you know what I see from your business and like being honest with us and, and he was one of the ones of all the VCs that, that liked, he wanted to invest in us because he liked the idea and he liked the concept of what we were trying to do and not because we were GitHub guys mm-hmm. um, and so, so you know, those are my, my fundraising stories, I, but again, like that's not where most people are <laughs> gonna come from either of those positions fundraising. Um, at any time, the v, any of the VCs could have said no across the board and I would just fund it myself and so mm. it, it's, it's a little bit less pressure I think that, to do that what i would look for is people who care about your product right if if you have other people like to find to 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 try to tell the story of what you're trying to accomplish and have people that believe in what you're trying to accomplish and not just because they think it's gonna just make them money or Mm -hmm. you know um look at the other portfolio companies that they invest in like are they shitty companies or or do they seem like really cool companies that you want to be in that in that area with um and then the other is for network right like are the other companies that they're investing in companies you want to talk to and learn from because they'll hook you up if they invest in you they'll hook you up with any of them right mm-hmm. and take you can take meetings with them and say what did you learn when you were building out a marketplace for your tutors or you know whatever right um, what what payment providers are you using that what are the pluses and like you can ask all of these questions that I think are really valuable and not have to research them yourself so those would be the things that I I look for more than you know how much money you can raise or or sort of like look at look at the environment that the VC uh, is interested in if you want to raise money if you can get away with not raising money then that's obviously way way better right you'll have more control um over the company you have more more control of your own future and then if you can get to the point where you're self-sustaining then raising money after that to grow is much much easier so that if if it's possible to do that we didn't you know it would have been hard to do that in the education space that we're in because we were writing curriculum and we were producing a lot of stuff that took years to, to do before we could really sell it and that type of thing is really hard like you can't pre-sell a book before you've written it right like you have to put in time and if it's a big project that takes lots of people like you have to invest in all of that before you can even see if it works or before you can sell it at all and so that type of business is very hard to do that with and a lot of software businesses are quite easy to do that with stand up something see if it works see if somebody will pay for it right like that you can do that I think uh,
4: pretty pretty bootstrappy if necessary so throughout your entrepreneurial journey, how have you handled failure? How oh, have I handled what? Failure. failure. Oh, failure. failure. Yeah. yeah. Um. That's I don't question.
0: think he's failed because um, <laughs> 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 see, his first business success, second success.
6: Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I think it's it's. I mean, yes, my th- this company, Chatterbug, I think has not hit some of the goals like it didn't get where I thought it would be would get in time and so we've had to sort of change direction and change our our goals right of saying okay like this is harder than we thought it was going to be or this market is much more difficult than we thought it was going to be and dig into it and it's more expensive to get to the point that we thought and then we go and we talk to other language learning companies and it was kind of the same for all of them right like you have to build up a brand and we didn't really know that like a GitHub was a very different type of, of model and so um, and so I think just resetting expectations and being clear with everybody, your investors, your employees, of saying, okay, we didn't do what we thought we were going to do. This is why we thought that happened, and this is where we want to try to go. And you know, I haven't gotten to the point where I've had to shut down a company yet, like gotten to that point. Um, and so, my, uh, like, I haven't had that level of failure. But I think I have a lot of friends who have. I've invested in companies who have shut down, right? And and having those conversations, I think that, you know, it's it's not as bad as you think it's gonna be. Like, I think it's hardest on the founder, right? Like, I, I've had a lot of sleepless nights at points in, in Chatterbug of not knowing do I? how much of my own money do I want to put into this, right? How long do I want to keep it going? And 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 now, like, I, it is my dream. It's what I want to do. It's, it's what I want to invest in. But, like, it's very nerve-wracking, right? To, to know, like, is this gonna work or is this not gonna work? And it's really hard on founders, I think, because they're the ones who have to tell everybody you know, people in the company, it sucks to lose the job, but then they'll go and they'll get another job. Um, and, and you know, investors, they're investors. Like, they lose money on companies constantly. Like, that's that's part of being an investor. Um, and so I think it's really kind of, it was actually kind of touching, I think, the, the the people that I've invested in where the companies went under had to have these really conversations that I could tell were very, very hard for them and I was like, yeah, it's fine, whatever, let's go get a beer. Like, I, like I understand that this is the risk, right? Like, you're my friend, it's fine. Um, and I think most investors are like that. Like, they won't, like, you're not their only shot, right? Like, I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's yeah, it's difficult. I mean, failure-wise, you know, one of the things I think that is maybe a smaller scale thing, but something that I've run into a lot more often is having to fire people, right? Where I find that, I, I, I consider that a failure of mine of of having a company where you hire somebody and you invest in them and you think they're going to do well and it doesn't for whatever reason it doesn't work out um, and you have to let them go and that's a it's a very difficult conversation for both sides like it sucks for the pe- person getting fired and it sucks for the person doing the firing and I feel like that is my failure of of you know, either not screening, what, right, or most likely not providing an environment in which they can be successful. Like, a lot of these people have been successful at other companies, and like, I wasn't able to provide that, and I find that as a failure and something that I try to learn from and figure out, like, is there a way to, to not to avoid this in the future, right? Not because it's a difficult conversation, but because I've, I've let people down in that in that situation. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I guess if you're asking, you know, what do you learn from failure, I think that the most important thing about failure is to learn from it, is to, to look at it and say, could this have gone differently? Could I have handled it better? Could we have avoided it somehow? And learn from that and move forward, right? And, and that type of thing has happened over and over again in smaller ways, like not to the point of shutting the company down for me, mm-hmm. but in, in you know, lots of different ways in the company.
4: So, so you, uh, oh, sorry, yeah? How do you balance expectation, uh, expectations of the VCs and investors and what you had as the ideal vision for your company? So has there been a point where you've had, you've had to compromise uh, when it comes to that? Uh, for the the expectations of VCs yeah. versus what, what you want for your company. Oh, what I want for my company.
6: Yeah. Um. I'm trying to think. Yes. So, I think when we brought on investors at GitHub, they had a very much more aggressive. They wanted us to be much more aggressive than we sort of naturally were, right? They wanted us to hire a sales team. We really didn't want to do that. We wanted to do all inbound. Um, they wanted. Uh, a very aggressive sales team actually the 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 people that we were talking to there there were a lot of different things I think that they were pushing for um, I think we were lucky enough to have good conversations with them like they because of of our leverage our sort of our vantage point coming in mm-hmm. to the to the deal they knew that they wanted to follow on as well i think I think so we had some power in that in that in that conversation and they trusted us to, to a large degree because we had built this big thing by ourselves and then we sort of allowed them to come in and invest in it. And so they had things they wanted us to do as as you know this company that they could see could get really big and they wanted to see us do that, right? Um, but they also realized that we had built it up to that point and without any of those tools, and so we would be hesitant to it, and if they pushed too hard, we'd probably shut shut down, right, and, like, not listen to them at all, and so I, I felt like we did have this tension for a long time with with um, with our first investors and, and, you know, our second investors uh, as well um, of, you know, them wanting us to be aggressive and us wanting to be, uh, I don't know, cool, right, like us wanting to... <laughs> To really care about our employees and our customers and, and in ways that is not maybe as common um, and and but I think in the end, you know it, it, it worked out as a good balance, like I think it is always good to have people saying you know here 's how other companies do it here 's how you, we see success, and then you can evaluate that and decide whether you want to do it it 's more difficult in a case where you 're losing money and you 're not sure how to get to profitability or if you 're going to be able to do it another round or if the company's going to go under. Then you know. Then you have to make the decision of what are my values, or, or like, how do I try to save the company so that I don't have to lay all of my employees off, which is which is also really difficult. And that's you know that's going to be different in every every situation. I've seen dozens of people go through that, um, and and it's always really really difficult, right? Of because you never know. Like that's the crappy thing about business is that you're like, okay, I could I have these two or three avenues I could go down, and I need like all of my money to like go down one route, and like I have to put I can't, you can't do halfway on all three of them because then they'll all fail, right? And so it's like, do you choose the right one? And you just have to, I don't know, talk to your co-founders and go with your gut. I mean, that's the other nice thing about co-founders is that then it's not all your fault if it fails, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, True. And, and, and say, okay, this is what we all think, and then have the whole company behind that one thing and then try to make it work and, and hope for the best, right? Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's always difficult.
2: Is, is there an idea that either... You, as an investor, really wanted to invest in, but didn't? Or you really wanted to build, but didn't? Maybe because of time or whatever? Yeah, so
6: one of the things that I tried to convince Tom to do um, in the early days is, uh, is a VR um, working environment. So because of this, this remote working thing, like I really like virtual reality. I don't know if you guys have ever played with any of the headsets and stuff. Um, I have. At the time that I was pitching this, I had like a uh oculus dk the developer the first developer kit which was really shitty comparatively (laughs) Um, and then and then now i have the Vive, which is actually amazingly good Um, and the newer generations i've heard of are are even better and and they'll keep getting better they're getting to the point where they're it's it's really really powerful environment and if the problem with co-working or not co-working with remote working is that you have this sort of you know Brady Bunch screen, Skype screen of like all these people's faces that are sort of dissociated, and you could create an environment that's not dissimilar from this table right now, yes. right, where it would be hard for us to, to really tell the difference between this and or us all being at home with the headsets on, then, you, then I think the future of remote work changes really dramatically, right, yes. or of conferences or, or, or of a lot of different types of interactions with people. Um, and there's a lot of ways to go there, but there, there are some prototypes that, that I've seen that are actually very good, right? Where you have spatial audio, and if you're talking, I hear it in this side of my head, or if you're talking, I hear it, and I can, you can see gaze, right? Um, and there's even advantages to that, right, of not having physics, right? We could pull down, like, white like, screens and show stuff off and, like, you know, throw them back up in the air, and, um, and or turn off communication channels so nobody else can hear us and we can have, like, a side conversation and stuff like that, right? Like, there's there's interesting things you can do with VR, I think, in, in meeting contexts and um, business contexts, like, show graphs on the table that come up, pop out of the table. Like, there's all sorts of cool stuff you can do in VR. And and I think that that's going to be the future of, of meeting, of sort of meeting spaces. But I started it four years ago and like the tech wasn't there and I think is still not really there. It's, it's close, but it's not, it's still too difficult. Um, but they're not that expensive. I mean, if, if you, if you, if it costs 800 bucks per employee, right, if you think about the stuff you, the the amount of money you spend on, on your employees, Mm -hmm. like investing in a headset for everybody and letting them work from home or, or having, you know, people in, in, multiple countries that that all have all of the advantages of being in an office together and all of the advantages of working remotely. At the same time, I think that's really powerful for businesses. So that's that's the idea that I want to see the most in the world right now, Um, but I don't know if the tech is there yet, but I I definitely think that that's coming and that's really exciting to me.
3: Um, Scott, quick question. When you first heard about the acquisition of GitHub by Microsoft, what was your first unfiltered thought? Uh,
6: My first thought was what's the share price? Um, but the, the um, so actually I was, I, was, I was pretty happy. So I think, I think it's funny, because I come from a background, um, I'm much older than you guys, and I come from a background <laughs> of this sort of um, uh, early open source days, uh, like early Red Hat, early uh, Susie Linux sort of background. And I ran Linux all through college, and I, I was like this really open source fanboy guy. And and I really hated Microsoft, right? Like I really, really hated Microsoft. And and um, and so I came from that background and but over the course of GitHub, Microsoft was always a really good partner for GitHub. So they worked with me on LibGit2, which is a project that I worked that I helped start. And and um, I, I didn't program too much on it because it was all in C and I'm not a strong C guy, but I really did try to hire people for it and nurture the project for it. And now it's 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 a embeddable Git library, right, that that most um, desktop applications that do Git or a lot of, most most of GitHub's competitors probably all use this thing. And it was a collaboration really between GitHub and Microsoft uh, because Microsoft wanted to use it as well. And and we worked amazingly well with them. They actually taught our team, I think, a lot of, of really good practices of software development. Like, they were very professional. Um, they're great to work with. And, and there's been a couple of different projects like that where we'll work with Microsoft on something and Microsoft was always just, Super professional. They they were adults, right? They were really, really. I mean, for better or for worse, they they were really, really good at the things that they did, um, and maybe not as much fun sometimes, but like in a, you know, in a professional way, right? And it was really, it was really great to work with them. And I think GitHub now is kind of at the point where it needs, it needs to to go down that route, right? Like it, there there are a lot of professionals uh, depending on it. I think it needs a more professional mindset, and all of the co-founders except one had already left, and and um, I think they were looking for a CEO. That's kind of how the conversations got started, I believe, and and so so the last co-founder was, was stepping down from the CEO position, and so if that's the case, I, I would prefer that it land somewhere. So there's two different ways that that can go, right? One is to IPO, which is kind of what we, that was our original plan when we raised, but now that all the co-founders are gone, like, to IPO means now GitHub would be this big company that only does one real big thing, which is like open source, and that would then be subject to market whims, right? Like, of investor relations and things like that. If you landed in a larger company, Microsoft doesn't really care, right? Like, the, the GitHub's bottom line is not important to Microsoft yeah. a, as much. Um, it's, a, it's a tiny fraction. It's, it's, it's almost a trillion dollar company, right? Like, the revenue that GitHub brings in is not, is not the main importance to, to Microsoft. Um and and so that means that Microsoft cares about the community, right? They really overpaid per share for for the revenue that that GitHub brings in. I think what they care about is open source community and making sure that developers think about Microsoft as a good place to to be right or to invest in to use Azure to use the other other projects that they use. And so it was a strategic investment which means that they care about the community, right yeah. and so and and they, they they're not going to cut things or make shitty decisions because they want to make more money off of the product, like an IPO probably would have gone through or a smaller company merger. Um, and so that's why I think that it's a good place for the product because I think that the people that Nat Friedman, the guy who's running it now, is an uh, open source like guy from way back, GNOME days, like... One of the greatest guys, and and he's running the company now, and I think it's the best decision, um, his best CEO that GetUp could have found, and and to have it under the wing of Microsoft and sort of the protection of Microsoft, really from from market whims, I think is actually really good good for the the company. So I'm happy. I mean, obviously personally, financially, I'm very happy with the 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 deal, um, <laughs> but but from a you know. Selling my baby, right? Yeah. Like I, I, wor- I built it and worked on it for a long time, and I do care yeah. about about what happens to it. And I use it every day as well. Like yeah. I still use it in Chatterbug We use it. I, I, program. I push to it. Like uh, you know, we, I, every time new features come out, like I'll email. I pay for it actually, um, uh, both my personal account and my corporate account. And 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 I think it's still a wonderful tool, and I want to see it keep being good, right? And so I think Microsoft is a good home for that. So that that was I'm sorry. It's a long conversation yeah, about that, but. But that's that's how I feel about the Microsoft deal.
2: And and you say that. So let me ask you, if if I may, that you had left GitHub, but you kept your shares. Yeah, shareholding you kept. Mm -hmm. Oh, of course course he kept the shareholding. You just
3: don't sell everything. (laughs) (laughs) No, he just left it in a bin while he was there. So Scott, do you remember um, like when you were making the decision to start coding on on Ruby? Um, do you do you remember what drove that decision
6: was it just on Ruby yeah. yeah so I mean I was I was a PHP developer before that um, if anybody knows what that is and, <laughs> um, and I still actually kind of love that language it was, it was really kind of um, the first professional language that I used and, and um, for building things that I wanted to, to see right like as opposed to per, like computer programming assignments or something um, and I built real websites and I built fun stuff and it was relatively easy to work in um, and then I found Ruby, and I, I loved it because it seemed like pseudocode. Like, it looked like not real code, right? It was like whatever I would think it would be, I would type it, and it would work. And I was like, this is ridiculous. It's so so beautiful. Like, I, just, I still like looking at it. Like, I still think it's really beautiful code. Um, sorry, more than Python. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it just always kind of made sense to me. It looked like small talk. Like, it just looked like this, this very concise, beautiful language. And, and you know, it's maybe not the fastest thing. I mean, I, you know, it depends on what you're building or whatever, but it's, it feels natural to me. And I always like, I always felt comfortable in it. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean that I just started at that time, I think Rails, like the first version of rails was coming out. And, uh, and so I've, I built some small website in Rails and I was like, this is so much better than doing stuff in PHP. It was stuff that, it was all of these subsystems that I had built up my own personal libraries to handle over time and like Ruby on Rails had all of them already and I was like, this, is, and they're all, they were all implemented better than the ways that I had done them. Um, these, you know, object-oriented database structures and everything. And so I was like, this is all pre-done for me and I can just use it and maybe improve it. Uh, I, I think I've, I have have a couple patches into, into Rails maybe over the years. Um, but it was... It was a great community as well. Like, that was the other nice thing is getting into the, the Ruby community um, in San Francisco in 2007, right, was a great time to, to get into the community. There's all these people that ended up at Twitter and, and, and um, sort of larger tech startups in, in San Francisco at the time. And I got to learn from a lot of them, and we all loved Ruby for this sort of simplicity of it. And so that's that's I've, I'm you know it's actually funny now when I when I moved to Chatterbug or when I started Chatterbug, I did all of the initial uh, programming in it, and I did it in. Like Rails, you know, four and uh, or maybe I started with Rails five, but I was like, "What is in Rails now?" Because I hadn't done any like for such a long time. Like I'd been working re- really as more of an executive function for a while, yeah. and so I'm like, "Let's dust these chops off and start, you know, programming." And I'm programming the same way that I programmed five years ago like routes and everything. Like the way that I was actually programming was very, it was very old school and I was using jQuery and stuff and then mm-hmm. I hired people and they came in and they're like, oh my God, what are you G-tweet. doing? This is horrible, horrible code. Um, and there's still a lot of it in the code base. So I apologize to everybody, all the engineers at Chatterbug that are listening to this maybe uh, uh, for what you do every day, ripping my old shit out. But, um, but yeah, so I've just, I've always liked it. Okay. Um, do you have any um,
5: like self-care tips? Like, you know, sometimes as a software developer, you get so into coding and not really taking care of yourself, whether that's mentally, physically. Um, yeah. When you're not running your business, or you're not coding, um, What? where do you draw inspiration from? Do you read any books? Do you travel?
6: I, I am traveling. What advice, um,
5: <laughs> what advice would you have?
6: Yeah, so, I mean, there's a couple of things. That, I mean, I like to travel, but that is not, it's not easy for everybody mm. to, to be able to travel. Um, I mean, if you can do conferences, like I love going to conferences and meeting people in the field. If we're talking about like in the field, right? Um, that's been one of the best ways of learning about new technologies and, and meeting new people. I pro- One of the things I really took advantage of when I was at GitHub was, was we would travel to conferences, we would just sponsor conferences and we'd buy beers. We, we would always try to, to take whatever the lanyards cost and then take that money to a bar, and then just say, "Buy a free beer for everybody for two thousand dollars or whatever," and because beer is much more valuable than lanyards uh, to, <laughs> to to software developers, and and so we just say, "Open bar," you know, for 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 the night, and all the developers would go. And I think that that was always the most. Cl- useful part of a conference was everybody meeting each other, right, Um, in this really open, open way. And so I met tons and tons of people all over the world doing these conferences all over the world. And so now, almost any city that I go and visit, I can go back through my email and find people that I hung out with there and email them and be like, "Do you guys want to do dinner? Like, take me somewhere local? Like, we'll go get food, you know, Polish food or whatever." If I'm I'm in Krakow um, or, or, you know, whatever the case is. And so it's, it's been really nice that I know people all over the world now, thanks to traveling and and doing these conferences and and they're all in tech and it's very cool. So that is nice. I think, you know, from a self-care perspective, it's important to, to have a hobby that's not programming. Right. So, um, I, I think most of the, the software people that I have, I actually don't, don't, I read some, but I'm mostly reading in like German now to try to improve my German. Than than, than things that are actually making me smarter, um, as far as new information goes. I'm reading like Harry Potter in German, so that that's not really helping me <laughs> mentally, from a, uh, a literature standpoint. But um, but music is good. Like I, I think a lot of software developers like music because it's very similar and in, in it's sort of a puzzle, right? Like you have a piece, you work on it, you practice it over and over again, you sort of solve it after a while you move on to the next thing and, and um, or or exercise like like you know running marathons or or, um, or you know tough mudders or something i don't know something some interesting challenge to do right where you're improving yourself in some way that's not that's not just programming because i think it's it's really draining to to just worry about your business and worry about software all day like people get burned out and people people Stop having new ideas, right, if, if you're doing that. So if you get into other things and you're interested in other things, um, you know, I have kids as well, and so that that is a whole different world that's not in, involved in this and that opens up other things and other parts of my brain and other parts of my mind. And so um, I think just having things outside of work is really important and not enough people, especially in the Valley, I, I don't know what it's like here as much, but don't care about other stuff. Like, they just focus on the, their startup, and I think that that's really... I think it's bad, right? I think it's bad for the startup to not have people with other other interests. Um, I got into wine. That was the thing that, that, I mean, I like drinking wine. We can drink wine. But, um, but I started taking professional-level classes, like sommelier classes, and, and really studying and like taking tests and doing blinds and stuff like that. Um, and getting way, way, way too into it, just because it was a different outlet, like it was learning how to smell and it was learning how to taste, and it was learning like how to use you know your senses in a different way that that I found like in an academic rigorous way, and then I also get to drink wine, and so it's actually kind of the best of both of those worlds um, uh, but yeah, so I think find a hobby that's not computer programming, and then you'll learn something from it that I think you'll be surprised that you can bring sort of back into to the rest of of your professional life.
3: I think one of the more common questions um, we sourced from people just starting to learn how to code in in like a group as a team is with Git collaboration. Um, like sometimes people have trouble like merging all their files. Mm-hmm. So can you give us like um, yeah. Um, yeah Scott's um, pro tips to like yeah. merge um, <laughs> yeah collaboration. Yeah.
6: Yeah, so uh, I mean, now there's good GUIs for that. I think I think even GitHub Desktop has a nice GUI. Actually, GitHub itself has a GUI for it. Like, if you push to a branch and it'll say there's conflicts, and you can you can yeah, resolve them. Yeah, yeah. Which I wanted that forever because it is it is one of the hugest pains, right? Of, yeah. of it was always difficult to teach people. They're like, oh, here's a command line thing, and it's like, okay, there's merge conflicts. What happens now? And you're like, now it's a nightmare. Now, <laughs> um, so. So yeah, I think GUI's help for, for newbies, GitHub is actually not to, I mean, I guess I don't have a huge financial uh, gain in, in plugging GitHub these days, but, but GitHub is actually has really nice tools for this now. Um, if, you, if you haven't used them, I would, I would try them. I even use them, actually, every once in a while where it's like, I'm not going to go back. It's not worth going back to the editor. I can do this and do the you know two-line, take this change, take this change, and, and merge it. I think from a larger perspective, the way that I always like to work and the way that all of my teams have worked is um, is to do everything in feature branches, right? Have them be relatively short-lived. and If they're longer-lived, um, to merge from master as often as possible. And I think people don't do that enough. They'll kind of work on their own thing and then wait yeah. until it's done and then merge it into master. Um, and it's and then you have a whole bunch of, of, okay. of conflicts. But you can merge from master every day, right? Like it doesn't, you don't have to get that. For, you can keep doing it. Um, and then every time that you do that, you just have little changes that, that, that pop up, right? You don't have like one massive, like I would try to do that as often as possible. You could do it every hour. Like if you see a bunch of stuff coming into master, just keep merging it into your, into your branch. And then if you want it to be clean, you can rebase it or something later if you want to be fancy, but um, I, I don't care. Like I, I, I'll have merge conflicts or, or um, merge commits all day and just filter them out of a log if, if I don't want to see them there, right? Like I think it's, 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 it's much, much easier to deal with, um, if you have a branch running for a month or something, to deal with 30 merges over time, then one big one at the end. Yeah. And I don't think enough people do that. Um, I think they want to keep their history clean and I, I don't see the value in it.
0: Um, my question would be, um, you being now in EduTech, what is the greatest lesson that you've learned? Uh,
6: it takes a really long time.
0: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, it takes much, much longer than we thought it would. Um, it is, it, it's, it, it Education tech is really difficult because it's hard, right? Like it's not enjoyable. It actually doesn't immediately improve people's lives. It makes people's lives harder for a very significant amount of time, in the hope that it will make their lives easier at some point in the future. Um, and so it's like it's it's more it's like it's like writing software to help people run a marathon, right? Where it like sucks up until the day you finish the marathon, and you're like, hey, I did a marathon. Like if. Every other day, it's like I'm just running a whole bunch, and I hate running. And and you know, if if, if you don't, and and getting people to the point where you have to keep showing them. If you do this, like if you keep doing this, and if you do it for months, and if it hurts for months, then at the end you will achieve your goal, and then you'll feel really good, and you'll be in good shape, and it will be good for you. But like getting them through that is is incredibly difficult to do. And education is the same way. Like you can show somebody, like oh, you can learn, um, you know, deep learning or something on on this online course, and it takes two months or whatever to go through this thing, and you start in on it, and there's just attrition. Like people. People immediately are like, okay, I can do a day, and then they try to do it again, and they, can't, they don't form a habit, and it's difficult. And language learning is the same way. Language learning is horrible. Like, it, it, it takes forever um, until you can have any sort of a real conversation with people. Um, you feel stupid every day you try to have a real conversation with people from day one until a year in, right? You feel like a total idiot, because one thing that human beings are not good at is not being good at language. Like, they feel dumb, because mm-hmm. they, they, as adults, you rarely feel that. Um, And so when you force yourself to learn French or to learn, you know, whatever, Kenya-Rwandan or something, like, you just feel dumb the whole time until you can have a conversation. And even when you can have a conversation, you still feel dumb. Like, I still have conversations. My German is relatively fluent. I still have conversations where people say stuff and I don't understand. And it's like, I've been doing this for three years and working really hard at it. And I can be good in these conversations. And you fail yet again three years in and it still feels horrible, right? And so to keep that motivation up is really hard and to have built a company around making people feel shitty for a really long amount of time, knowing that if they go through it, that, that they'll have an, a new skill that they'll be very proud of and that they'll really enjoy using um, is, it's hard. Like it's just a very, very difficult problem. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of different ways to solve it. One is to just look for students that are highly motivated, so that you don't have to keep convincing people. One is to build in a bunch of gamification to try to pretend that it's fun, in the meantime. But because of the way that we're doing it, like you can do that if you're Duolingo or something, where you're not really teaching people to speak the language, you're you're teaching them vocabulary abstractly. But then they go and try to have a conversation, they'll fail, and then they'll feel really bad, right? We have them have conversations all the time, so they they. Like you don't get better at a language unless you suck at it a little bit every time or you feel a little bit embarrassed. or you learn what I can't say that what you you have to struggle in it every, every day, right? Um, and once you stop struggling, then you stop learning. And so like our job is to build something that forces people to struggle every day, and that's that's a really, really hard thing to do.
0: And in the spirit of feeling dumb and inefficient, um, do you ever experience like imposter syndrome when you're creating your products or yeah?
6: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I experience imposter syndrome probably every day because I you know I'm an art major that lucked into the greatest fucking startup opportunity like out of pure dumb luck of just things that I happen to be interested in, um, and when I when I quit my job and started there, I was sure it was going to financially ruin me because it wasn't really making any money and we didn't really see everybody we talked to was like there's the mar- market cap on this entire industry is probably a hundred million dollars and and. You know, I mean, and looking back on it from a seven billion dollar sale, like it seems ridiculous. But like at the time, you know, that's not. I didn't get into it because I thought it was going to make money. And so, like, I feel like a lot of most really of of what I'm saying here now, I've learned over time. It's not that I was good at it or I'm smart or something. It's just this is things that happened to me and and learning from other people around us where we were like, okay, this is probably what happened and how we should move forward. And so it's all ideas that not my ideas, it's stuff that Tom and, and Chris and PJ and people that I've worked with, Ann and everybody, like, it's it's what I've learned from them over time, and and kind of, you know, I'm regurgitating to you now because it's what I've learned, but, like, I still feel very, very lucky, right, and so every time that there's, there's a decision, I can draw on my history, but I don't think I'm good at these things, right, um, I, I was super, super lucky, and I've been able to survive for a while in this industry and see a lot of stuff, and so that's been really nice, but I always feel like an imposter to some degree, I think.
2: So how how do you then deal with that? And how do you trust your own decision? Say you have to make a decision between two things and it's up to you, yeah. how do you trust but yourself? I think
6: I think you deal with it the same way, or I deal with it the same way that everybody deals with it or should deal with imposter syndrome, which is talking to people, right? So I think imposter syndrome happens when you're isolated and then you're wondering what's expected of you or what you should do or if what you did is valuable or... or um, or lets people down or whatever, right? If you have regular one-on-ones with your manager, I think, imposter sy- or, or with your peers, then imposter syndrome be- goes away because it, people are very, and if you trust them, people are very explicit. Here's what we expect, here's what you've done, here's what we think you could do better, like, you know, here's what next week is in store, like what you should do next week. And as long as that continues, I think it's harder to have that, that imposter syndrome, right? Imposter syndrome, I think, happens when you're left to your own thoughts about what is expected of you or what people think about you. And if people are honest with you, um, and you have regular communication then it's fine and and for a CEO or for running a company I think it's exactly the same thing I have regular communication with my co-founders and with my executive team um, and mm. and you know we have regular one-on-ones and I ask what is the company expecting of me am I providing what I need to like here's a decision let's here's what I think let's all weigh in on this and then you know a lot of times, that's the decision that we'll do but i like a lot of times it's not right a lot of times we'll say okay well, we don't think we want to go that way and so then i think i can avoid a lot of the worst parts of, of not feeling like i'm maybe the best person for the job right and and by regularly communicating with people with the people that surround me and the people that i work with and the people that the employees of the company as well and say like you know what what is what, what are people expecting of me like in my meeting expectations Um, Am I exceeding expectations like like is this what you think I should be doing and 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 I think if you have that type of conversation regularly either as a CEO or as you know an intern that that It's a valuable conversation to have to to avoid that type of problem
3: Scott what do you think is the future of learning you spoke about the future of work earlier? Yeah, and working remotely What do you think is is like the future of learning?
6: Yeah, so I I mean I think the future of learning is really fast I think it's much different than, than most learning today. Um, and it depends on which future, like, the, like, uh, I, I see learning becoming more individualized um, and less sort of, I, I think it's interesting to look at the way that my daughter is educated, right? Or, or that I was educated as a kid, which is largely the same way, um, which is going to school. School has very set hours, right? It's like from eight to five um, or eight to three or whatever. And there's, like, a 15-minute window that you can drop off your kid to school. And then there's, like, a 15-minute window you can pick your kids up. And all the parents, like, line up. And then the kids go from... To, through six different subjects, and they're all 45 minutes long, like every subject is the same, and none of them really cross over into each other, and there's, no, there's it's sort of like a series of exercises that you're doing that you memorize, and you take a test, and most of us couldn't pass those tests today if we didn't go back and and like, or at least the ones in high school, maybe the ones in elementary school, but like you learn a bunch of facts and stuff, and then you kind of forget them, and it's not really integrated learning, and it's not, and all the entire classroom moves at the exact same pace, right? Like. Um, there was a friend of mine who was who is there's I don't know there's some some saying about um, how you would like build a building like you wouldn't lay the foundation and then test it and say like it's 75% good um, or 80% good and then be like okay cool let's build the next story right and then you build the next story and it's like it's 75% structurally sound and they're like okay let's build the next story but that's how education works right like you get a passing score and then you move on to the next thing you're not mastering the the like each subject as it's coming up <clears throat> and so. I think that that's not necessary. I think that it's totally doable to have, you know, more of the ways that probably Moringa School works, and that I know a lot of coding coding schools work, where it's much more individualized and it's much more project based. And you're saying, okay, here's some of the skills that you'll probably need to do the 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 what you want to accomplish. Um, and and choose a project and then learn everything you need to accomplish that project and work with mentors on the things that you're weak at and then finish the project and then retrospectively look at it and say, how could I have done that project better? And then choose a, a more, a different type of project or a more complicated project and then take everything you know and build on it and do something more complicated, right? And having this sort of project-based learning and finding partners that can come in and help you with things that you're weak at. Like I think this type of thing, you can do that in school as well, right? Like Like you could say, let's you know what is what is what is the kid interested in what do they want to do do they want to create music do they want to write a play like okay if they want to create music there's there's all sorts of musical theory and math and science and like there's tons of stuff involved in learning how to create music um, where you can learn about the fundamentals of things in order to to do an interesting project right and then move on to another interesting project and cover all of the things that you should learn in school um, in an interesting way in an engaging way and so and, and per child, like, like it doesn't have to be everybody's moving at the same pace. You shouldn't need to have 45 minutes of math and 45 minutes of science and 45 minutes of English like every day, all the time. Like you should have an engaging environment where you can learn all of these things when you need them in order to accomplish something interesting. So right. I think that that's the future of education. I think we're starting to see it in in post-secondary schools now um, that have more freedom to, to do things differently. I'm, I work a little bit with code uh, school in Berlin, which which does this type of education for for bachelor's degrees in computer science um, that I find really, really fascinating, right? And I think moving that down into the high school and into the elementary school levels um, is doable. It's just really difficult because it's such an entrenched sort of sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and so we're starting to see it in some education. I think that that's much better education is mastery education, right? You shouldn't move on to the next subject before you've mastered the thing that comes before it because then you don't have the foundation to, to, to really get good at it. And I think it's really sad because, because for, I mean, my whole life, right? Like, you look at kids and it's like they, they're C kids, right? And it's like, those are dumb kids and I think that that's not the case, ever, right? Like, I think most most kids are very intelligent and they come in from different backgrounds and with different support structures and they don't have the time, they don't have the parenting or whatever to, to be able to, or like they come to school hungry because, you know, they don't have resources at home or whatever. And then they, they get seasoned and then they're down that path forever, right? Like they, it's so hard to recover from that. And there's, there, there's no reason for that. Yeah. And I find it really, really sad. Um, and so, so I think if it was individualized, if there was time to say, here's a thing that you're interested in and here's the support for it and here's how to build up to that, um, and build all the, the elementary school things that you need to know in order to accomplish that, then, then everybody can learn a lot better um, and, and more. Pro- anyways, so, uh, sorry, that's a really long way of answering that question, but, mm. but that, is, that is what I think the future is. And that's kind of what we're trying to do with Chatterbug as well, is, mm. is let everybody learn at their own pace and learn from what they're doing. Like mm. when you do exercises, you rate it, the tutor rates it, and if you don't do well, then you just repeat it the next week, right? And, and you go over it until you get good at it, and then you move forward. Um, and you move forward in different areas and and so everybody ends up in the same place but they all take different paths to get there and I think education could be like that.
2: Permit me to ask, right, yep. and uh, ask for kanda. what is the reputation of African devs glo- globally?
6: Um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I have a fairly high, um, uh, personal opinion of African developers because I know Ushidi, yeah. um, and I've been involved with Eric for a long time and, um, uh, and and the 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 iHub work the brick work right so like I'm I'm exposed to that I mean it's it's fairly small yes. but I mean it's actually bigger than say if you ask me my opinion of developers from Oslo right like I, mean, <laughs> I don't really know I know I know sort of one city in Africa um, and I I have a high opinion of of, of the, the work that comes out of that and especially with brick with sort of the African pride of, of trying to have everything built in Africa and, yes. and developed by Africans and mm. and and um, and in Rwanda when when we were here last time we we toured uh, KIST which is the uh, Kigali Science Technology School and and uh, University Patari which has a, a really good computer science program and so like I'm I'm biased in a different way because I've been here and I know a number of people mm. uh, maybe better than a lot of European countries even um, and and so that's mine. I, I, I don't really know, uh, outside of that. I think you know. I mean, to be honest, the conversations that, that that I have had with people in uh, in government in Rwanda um, it, and 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 some, some other individuals is the connectivity is really difficult. And yes. so yeah. trying to do high bandwidth video things or whatever like. I, it could be better now. Yes. Um, certainly in Kigali, at the time it was horrible. Yes. Um, yes. I think now it's still actually pretty bad. Yeah. Um, I don't know what 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 sort of bandwidth here to to Europe is or to America or depending on who you're trying to work with. Like you know, China actually I, I, I actually see a lot of Chinese uh, Rwandan um, collaboration, and so maybe you know the United States is not the market that that is really looking to Africa for yes. for development work. Um, but internally, I mean, the brickworks is amazing. Like the the stuff that I've seen from them yes. with the the new um, uh, connectivity on buses and stuff. Like, there's a lot of really interesting. Uh, uh, actually, it was funny the first time or the last time we were here in 2006. We were looking at at everybody showing us their cell phone stuff, and I was like, the cell phone technology here is light years ahead of cell phone <laughs> technology in the United States because we have we had like this old network that was just like nobody ever really wanted to upgrade and it was so impossible. And then in we were in Kigali and like everything was brand new and put up. And, and so we were looking at every, everybody switching out SIM cards and they'd have different SIM cards for different things. And I'm like, what's a SIM card? And I'm like, aren't you from America? We, we don't have that technology in America. It's amazing. Um, so I, yeah, I, I think mm-hmm. it, 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 uh, it depends. My, mm-hmm. my opinion is very high. Um, and I, I think that there's, there's, if it's not happening, mm. um, I, I'm kind of ignorant about this. But mm. if it's not happening, I think the the ability to work mm. between uh, Rwanda and 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 Kenya mm. and Europe, right, mm. is so good because of there's no time zone yes, yes, problems, yes. and that is the biggest problem with working, uh, I think, between Europe and
2: America right now. And and here we, we we like we want to build what we are calling the Silicon Savannah mm. kind of rather than the Silicon Valley. What advice would you give us when a hub startups and kind of head the San Francisco way where we are we're hub in Nairobi? What advice would you give us to head that way, from your Experience. Yeah, I mean
6: that's it's really difficult. I I, I would say like I don't the problems is that I don't really know what it takes to start a business here. I don't know mm. what it takes what it's like to work with government here. I know yes. it's vastly different working with government in Kigali than or in, in Rwanda than it is in Kenya. Yes, yes. And so like I know more actually Rwanda than I do yes. Kenya as far as as business uh, um, requirements and how hard it is to start up yes, a company yes. and what taxes are and, and things like that. Um, I don't know what the investment uh, sort of group is. If you have a good idea, if you mm. want it to grow, is it Possible to get capital here? Um, I think it is, but I I don't think it's the same as in Europe, which is not the same as in America. Um, And so, I I wish I could answer the question more. Mm -hmm. This is part of why I'm interested in talking to Mark, right? Like Mark is trying to do um, some 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 capital, Mm -hmm. some VC stuff here, and I I just I don't know the Mm -hmm. community at all. So maybe you can
5: tell us just also for the listeners what Mark does, what impact Africa Network is, if uh, yeah. Uh, oh, I wish I went. <laughs> um,
6: so I'm sorry. I've had one conversation with Mark <laughs> yeah. in San Francisco, and he invited me out yes. here, and I came out here. But oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. No problem. But yes, he he. So Mark Mark was um, he worked in in the Bay Area for a long time, and and worked for um, some large uh, software companies in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and saw sort of the VC startup community there, and and is from Nairobi, and mm-hmm. really wanted. To see that type of community here, which he didn't see as existing in, in the same way, right. um, and so has been trying to connect, I think, the people from from the valley um, with Nairobi specifically, and say there's a lot of smart people coming out of here, there's a lot of great ideas coming out of here, um, and it would be great if there was more of a startup culture in Nairobi specifically, um, and and so that that was interesting to me, and, and is why you know we wanted to to come here and kind of connect with him, um, but uh, but yeah. Okay. okay, so I recently
1: saw a tweet by Marcus Brownlee. It's a YouTube, uh, YouTube. Um, he's a YouTuber, yeah, funny name. And he said that his recent tech, t- tech, uh, tech pet peeve is the use of AI on everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so I had two questions for you. Like, one, what's your tech pet peeve? And number two, what's your view on the AI revolution? And what do you think it can do? Do you buy into this?
6: Uh, it's going to take over our jobs or are you have a different opinion on the matter? Okay, so two questions. Um, the one, and I'm—I apologize if I make anybody mad here. Uh-huh. Uh, this is an unpopular, value opinion, especially. Uh, is my pet peeve is blockchain, um, mm. because I have not seen anything <laughs> that uses blockchain that makes anything better, yeah. Um, yeah. in any way. So that that it, some other algorithm wouldn't like it, it. It is essentially an algorithm, and I see it being applied. To random things for no reason whatsoever, um, in no way that I can see that would improve that that area or product, Um, and and especially in most cases in ways that you wouldn't just have a centralized database that would do that problem a hundred times better, Mm -hmm. Um, and so that that I I I really don't like. Um, Mm There's there's a ton of that. I think there is a place for cryptocurrency. Um, Actually, I've even seen some some possible applications in uh, in Africa where where like there, in places where it is difficult, where there is a centralized currency that, that um, is more difficult to to move, right? Mm-hmm. To, to have something that's more decentralized might be valuable. There's a lot of really interesting payment systems in, in Africa that you don't see in the United States or Europe as much through mobile payments and, mm-hmm. and like MTN and in Rwanda, like everybody seemed to be paying with that. Mm-hmm. And like, I, it, so there there are interesting Alternative currency models, I think, but but mm-hmm. blockchain, I think, maybe that's valuable in that context. But in almost every other context <laughs> I've ever seen, um, it's not, and and it is incredibly wasteful, energy-wise, for the for the Bitcoin, which is also frustrating, right, to to some degree of just having all of this waste of of essentially speculation, in in my view. But, anyways, uh, I think at some point, <laughs> um, that that's my pet peeve right now is blockchain, everything blockchain. But yeah. um, the the AI, I think. Um, is, it, it can be very valuable. So, mm-hmm. so I mean, there's a lot of problems to it, right? You, you overfit for things for whatever the training, like you have to be careful what the training model is. Um, we have been looking at it for for trying to solve some problems with language learning, right? Of of trying to find patterns in, like, we have a whole bunch of data about how people mm-hmm. learn languages, saying like, should we introduce content in a different order? Does it seem to make a like. Like what are the patterns on how people learn words or how people learn grammar in a way that we can optimize, right? But I mean, every almost everything with 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 a lot of the AI solutions is you're you're getting like some small percentage improvement, right? If you have some big data set and you're trying to get 10%, and you know you can apply AI to it, you might be able to to recover that. Um, but you know, for what we're doing right now, we're not really looking for for a couple of percentages is not worth the investment right now to, to really put everything down that path. I think what most companies would do, would do it anyways and then tell the customers that AI is backing all of this <laughs> shit. And it's like, we don't care. We're like, we just want it to work, right? And so, um, and in a lot of cases for us, human beings are much better than, than any computer solution. Mm-hmm. I think in the future that may not be true. Um, but you know the thing with, with anything technology, anything AI, anything um, uh, where you're trying to automate some, something that humans used to do, um, is to, to ask yourself whether there's, like, whether humans are better at it or whether computers should be better at it, right? And, mm-hmm. and so language learning is always going to be something that, that humans are going to be better at because people want to talk to humans, right? And so mm-hmm. even, if, if they, even if they, like, I think having some computer support in it would be good, but at the end of the day, you can teach a computer to be as good at, as a human at something, and and what most people want in in sort of the language space this is like just an example of kind of what we're looking at from my company is people who are like do you think google you know translator something is going to uh, destroy the need for learning languages in the future because you can have this thing in your ear and it'll just translate everything and i think the logical outcome of that is you can make that you can make the thing in your ear as good as a human you can't make it as good as understanding the language right and mm-hmm. so if you have a human translator, if anybody's ever had a human translator that does, like, simultaneous translation when you're, when you're having a conversation with somebody, it's a nightmare. Like, it's not a good way of communicating with somebody. Like, it is very difficult to do. You lose a lot of context, and, and you can communicate, but there's communication and there's culture in language. And so you can't teach a, a computer to be cultural like, like, are
5: always yeah, gonna want to, yeah.
6: like, like, you know, we're gonna want to go out and get beers and talk in the language, like, not have fucking earpieces in for everybody. That's not, you're not gonna want to get married with an earpiece in. Like, there, there are, <laughs> there are things True. that that you learn languages for, um, for your family, for your loved ones, for for culture, for meeting people, for learning new things, for for learning about cultures that are not your own, right? Which mm-hmm. I think is inherently very valuable. Um, and Google doesn't won't ever provide that no matter how, how good AI becomes. Um, and so that's, that's one application of it, but I think you can apply it to most things, right? If it's something, if it's something deterministic, if it's something automatable and human beings are doing it because it's cheaper right now, then at some point computers will probably be better at that. And then those jobs will be changed. Right. And hopefully those jobs will be changed into the people that used to do that now have a really good idea of how it's supposed to happen and they can help, figure out how, how the computers are supposed to do it, right? Like, um, I think you see this actually, there's, there's a lot of criticism of, of, of Amazon stuff, but Amazon is interesting in, in the warehousing thing where, where they have been automating a ton of stuff, but constantly hiring, right? Because they're, they're growing so fast that they're, they're automating jobs and then the people who had those jobs become sort of supervisors of a larger group of, of sort of robots or, or um, algorithms because they understand what the job really is, right? In a way that, that a computer can't, you can just program a computer to do. So I, I don't, I, I don't think, I think it's a fallacy to think that automation destroys jobs. I think mm-hmm. automation changes jobs, mm-hmm. um, and there's always efficiencies to be had, right? And automations will create that that efficiency, but human beings will always there will always be jobs for human beings to do. There'll always be uh, decisions to be made, right? That are that are difficult to do, um, or artistic things, or customer service, like that like having a human being respond to you in some way, pick up a phone, like if you've ever now, I mean I'm sure it'll get better at some point, but picking up a phone and having a computer like go through a thing is, I just immediately just start hitting zero <laughs> as much as I can because eventually it'll transfer me to a human being and I just want to have that conversation <laughs> with human being. Um, yeah. It's like if I wanted to do, the, I would have used the internet. Like the, the website should do the, all the, the things that your automated thing right. does, but way, way faster. So I have a problem that I'm calling in. I want to talk to a person. And if that's a pro tip. If you hit zero a whole bunch of times, at least in most automated systems, it will go to a human being, which is my favorite thing. to do. I would just do it every single time, zero, zero. <laughs> um, But yeah, so I don't know if that answered the question at all. but. Um, but I, I'm not afraid of, of AI or technology in general destroying jobs. Uh, yeah. I, I, think, I think, if anything, it gives everybody else
4: more interesting jobs, more human jobs. What about as a threat to civilization as people are afraid? Oh, of no, there's definitely a threat to civilization. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it'll, it'll, it'll kill us all.
6: It's just a matter of time. Um, but we'll all have jobs until that happens. So.
0: <laughs> Any other question, guys?
5: Yeah, um, I'm just curious, as a final note, um, you know, the future of Chatterbag and maybe um, people with learning disabilities, like if you're dyslexic or blind or deaf, do you have any plans in terms of improving learning or communication for um, different groups?
6: Um, So we do, it depends on the the group. So the the way that we're doing it right now, uh, so I mean, one is we're looking into doing an American Sign Language course. Um, and so that 's kind of the opposite it 's not not adapting being able to learn French for the deaf it's it 's more uh, allowing other deaf people or other hearing people t- to learn a uh, uh, sign language yeah. um, which is very difficult before right it's it 's yeah. actually very hard to learn sign language remotely. I think that there 's a big area for this, and I would love to get into it um, so that 's a little bit different. I think you know technology wise i it's very, the way, the thing that we're focusing on is speaking the language. And so um, being able to adapt that for the deaf, like to be able to learn French or something, I don't think our platform has much to offer above reading a book or you know other sort of online resources because that's kind of what the focus is, is video. Um, for dyslexia, colorblindness, for other sort of disabilities, I mean, we do try to do usability Um, best practices but again it's a video app and so Mm -hmm. there's only so much that you can do Mm -hmm. with you know a video app it's like asking this of skype or something it's like i don't there's only so much so far you you can go with some of this i mean we do try to subtitle everything um which is helpful from a learning context right is it has it in sort of the original language and then it has uh, translations of everything and so if you are deaf and you're trying to learn our app might actually be relatively good because we have a ton of videos and they're all subtitled and you can click on words you don't know and put them into your study and things like that but the the main part the, the speaking part is always going to be difficult but if you're deaf that's gonna be difficult anyways right mm-hmm. like like it's gonna be hard to go somewhere and hear Italian or speak Italian um, so we're not focusing on it that much just because of the practicality of it not because we don't want to right? Mm-hmm.
4: I have one more question. Mm-hmm. This is more of a personal note. Is there something on, actually, some of us saw something on your website about being a gorilla tema. Oh, yeah. Well, that was because
6: <laughs> I went to uh, Rwanda in 2006 and did the gorilla trek, and I had a picture of, of me with the gorillas in the background. And I used it as like my, um, the, uh, I, when I wrote Git, I wrote the, this technical book that was published by A Press, and they asked me for an author photo. And I sent him that, and so there's a picture of me with the gorillas on it, like on my book, and people ask me about it. They're like, "What? what is, like how did this happen? <laughs> because most people don't know that you can do that, right? That you can, that gri- the mountain gorillas are super, super tame, and like you can just kind of go there and sit down and take pictures and hang out with them for a while and leave. Um, and so seeing pictures of videos of that type of thing, it's just a fun story to
2: tell that, that that I did that unless they punch you in the stomach. Unless they punch you in the stomach. But now I'm so glad that I have the story. This is this is everyone I ever meet at a bar yeah. from now on.
6: You've been no. punched in the stomach by a gorilla. <laughs> you have
2: now to say the story to our listeners.
6: Oh, that's right. This yeah. was before we started recording. Uh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll uh, maybe you can put it on your website. Yeah. I, I have a video of so I went I went gorilla trekking in Rwanda last week. Um, and I got, the, the trackers had me, I was taking pictures of one of the gorillas and the trackers were like, come over here and do it from over here. And, uh, and so I went over there, I followed the advice of the professionals <laughs> in the group, and I went over there and I, and I guess I was a little bit too close and the mom came, like, saw me there and like stood there and then walked towards me and tapped me, like, punched me in the stomach, which sent me down, like sent, <laughs> flew me back a, a foot. And, uh, and then I, you kneel down and stuff, and she, she walked by. And it, it, it just surprised me. So it's funny, because on the video, you can hear me go. <laughs> <laughs> she hits me. I think it's definitely
3: connected to the, the picture on your book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we're also
6: curious about the baby signing. baby signing, yeah. yeah. So actually, the first uh, language that I well, so I learned some Spanish in high school. And then in college, I actually studied American Sign Language um, for um, three or four years. And so my my ASL is is actually decent. Uh, I can have conversations and sign. But uh, one of the things that I adapted that for is a lot of people now will sign to their kids when they're they're actually about my son's age, uh, about one year old or so. um, Because physiologically, human beings can communicate uh, or want to communicate before they're physically able to speak because Mm -hmm. speaking is very physically difficult to do. Um, There's a lot of muscles involved and and a lot of difficulty and it takes a long time to develop it But your brain is wanting to communicate when you're much younger than that and so most kids will start Getting frustrated and crying and stuff because they want to communicate something and they're not able to Um, And so one of the ways around that is you can teach your kids some sign Because you can they can manipulate their hands before they can manipulate their tongue um, usefully and so they can learn really simple signs. And so you learn that you teach your kids every time you feed them, you teach them a sign for food. Or every time you take the plate away, you teach them a sign for all done um, or milk or juice or like whatever. And, and so you, you come up with, with words that you think would be valuable for your kid to say and then they'll pick them up. And so like my son's actually starting to do a couple of them now. He's, one, he's 11 months old. Um, my daughter, when she was yeah, between 11, 11 months and maybe a year and a half, would sign all the time like she she would say ba 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 or whatever and but she would be signing bear and so you're like oh that was very close to bear but like then you know what she's doing and then you give her a bear and then she's happy so um it's actually a really valuable thing if you have kids to to sign to them to to like you can pick up a book with a handful of baby signs and it's a really valuable communication technique for for young kids. So okay. thanks, thanks for
3: clearing that up. <laughs> I, <had something>, <laughs> <laughs> I actually brought my my baby who's upstairs for you to autograph. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, th- Thanks Scott. That sounds like something
4: something really interesting that parents should like look into. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. you finished. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, guys. So. Thank you for coming through and maybe uh, you can plug in maybe your social media or any other final remarks that you have.
6: Oh yeah, so I'm on Twitter at uh, just Chacon Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I think that's it actually. (laughs) 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 Yeah, check out, I mean, if you're interested in learning French or German or something, you can check out Chatterbug. Uh, We do French, or I'm sorry, we do German, Spanish. Spanish. Um, I could probably get you into the French beta. Uh, and then we're also doing English, but if you're this far through the podcast, you're probably not trying to <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so
0: personally for me, it's a pleasure meeting you considering I use guitar every day, uh, yeah. All of us, actually. Yeah. So thank you for coming. Yes. And um, maybe next time when you come, we can give you a shout and you can talk to us about how Chatterbug is going on. Yeah, right? that'd be great. Sure. Thank you so much for having thank me. You. Thank, thank you. You're
4: so so welcome. Thank you. you.
2: Uh, bye, guys. Okay. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Thank you.